Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll pick up in our study of the spiritual disciplines. Let's pray. Father, we come before You now singing of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the One who left heaven to partake of our nature, to live perfectly as our substitute in our place, to die under Your wrath, appeasing Your justice, and the One who by His blood has purchased us to be a people for His own possession. And You have liberated us, freed us from our sin by the blood of Your Son, and made us to be a kingdom and priest to You, our God and Father. And for that, we're thankful. We're thankful for Your Word in the midst of such a darkened time in our culture and world where people can't figure out anything. There's no truth, no absolute truth, but we have an absolute Word from heaven. And as we open it this morning, we pray that You would give us the grace and wisdom to understand Your Word and apply it to our lives for Your glory. And it's to that end we pray. Amen. Alright, we'll pick up in our study this morning of the spiritual disciplines. And a reminder that uh, the verses that kind of undergird this whole series, two verses, 1 Timothy 4.7, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And 2 Peter 3.18, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, So that's what our responsibility is as Christians, to grow as believers by giving ourselves to the various disciplines that God has given to us and by which we may grow. So we've been considering those. We've looked at the first three and we're in the midst of the study of the fourth one so far. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about Bible intake. We've talked about worship. And now we're on the fourth discipline, namely evangelism. Evangelism. And I told you that as we work our way through this discipline, there's going to be two parts to this study. Two parts. In part one, we talked about the basics of evangelism. The basics of evangelism. The who, what, when, where, why how of evangelism. And we concluded that everyone is to do evangelism, right? When are we to do it? All the time. Where are we to do it? Everywhere. Everywhere. And then we talked about some of the ways to do it as well. Okay. But now, we're in the midst of part two of this lesson on the topic of evangelism. We began looking at this last week. And I've titled this lesson, uh, The Essential Components of a Gospel Message, an Outline for Evangelism an outline for evangelism. And what I want to do in this lesson, as I told you last week, is provide you with some basic elements, uh, kind of an outline of things to say to the unbeliever as you seek to communicate the gospel to him. And I gave you a five-point outline last week. Does anybody remember those five points? Sean, other than you. Caitlin remembers. That's why we take notes, right? Good job, Dave. Good job. Don't ever make fun of me for taking notes. (laughs) So God, man, Christ response, and promises and warnings. Okay? So when we're sharing the gospel, these are the important truths that we need to communicate. Okay? There are many truncated gospels in our culture, right? Many incomplete, distorted, watered down versions of the gospel. What are some gospels that we hear in our day that just aren't exactly biblical? Go to God, He'll save your marriage. Is that true? Not necessarily, right? No, it, it is... What you say, Ian? Come to Christ and then your life will be perfect. Come to Christ. He'll give you a better life, right? That's why we come to Jesus. We want to be happy and we want to live a nice and easy life and have the American dream. God is life. Love. You would never send anyone to hell. That's right. God is love. That's all He is. He'd never send anyone to hell. 
It's been commonly said that if your God would never send anyone to hell, you're right, because your God doesn't exist. The God of the Bible is a God of justice, a God of righteousness, right? What are some other examples of a truncated gospel that we might hear today? Jesus is an example. He's just another man. Okay, so we just point to Jesus as an example, right? That's Now, certainly Christ is our greatest teacher. example. Say that again. Or teacher. Or just a teacher. Just a prophet. Okay. Just add Jesus. He's just the cherry on top of the ice cream, right? What would be a better way to present Jesus? Instead of saying He's the cherry on top, what is it? He's everything, right? Paul says to live as Christ. To live as Christ. You can't say that. The Gospel has not been wrought in your heart affection. Because the true Gospel demands us to totally surrender to Christ, right? To make Him... That He becomes our life. There's another one that's really subtle. And it really has to do with the gospel call, the way we call people. So we might get a lot of things right. Jesus died for sin. Right? You're a sinner. But then what we end up doing is saying what? How do we call people to respond to the gospel in our culture? Say Just say a prayer. Walking out. Come up here and fill out the card. Ask Jesus into your heart. Accept Christ. None of those phrases are ever in the New Testament. Jesus never. Jesus didn't burst onto the scene in Israel and say, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Who wants to ask me into their heart? Right? That's not what Jesus did. He called them to repent and believe. Right? So there are many truncated gospels in our day. What we want to do when we go out into the world with the gospel is make sure we're accurately presenting that gospel in hopes that sinners will be saved. We don't want to give sinners false hope, do we? We don't want to give sinners false hope. We want to give them true hope and the true gospel. So God, man, Christ, response, promises, and warnings. We looked at the first point last week. God. God. And what did we talk about? What were some of the things about God that we said we need to communicate to the unbeliever? God is holy. God is holy. Instead of starting with God is love, it may be a good idea to start with God is holy. God is holy. What else? God is just. God hates sin, right? God's holy, just, and He hates sin. It's not like He just kind of dislikes sin. He, he, he hates it. He abhors it. He comes against it in judgment. And did we conclude that God only hates sin? No. God hates the sinner. That's what the Bible says, right? Gandhi said God hates the sin, loves the sinner. But the Bible says, Psalm 5.5, that you hate all workers of iniquity. Right? That means that God's judgment is set against the wicked. Right? What else? God's a righteous judge. He's going to have a day of judgment. There are many injustices in our day, isn't there? I mean, we see it all over Facebook, right? But God will one day right every wrong and bring everyone to justice. What else? What about God's standard? What do we? God's standard is perfection. If you want to shock an unbeliever, say, "Hey, did you know that you have to be perfect to go to heaven?" It's true. You got to be perfect. Of course, none of us can be. That's where the Gospel comes in. We're made perfect by faith in Christ. Right? Alright, so God. We talked about the character of God. Now, this morning, we're going to come to point two of the outline, and we're going to talk about the character of man. John Calvin said in the Institutes that all true wisdom begins with the knowledge of God and a right knowledge of ourselves. And in reality, when you go to the streets with the Gospel, this is the problem. Right? We talked about that last week, Romans 10 that men are ignorant of the righteousness of God. 
They're ignorant. They have an erroneous view of God and an erroneous view of self. All problems with misunderstanding of the Gospel usually revolve around an erroneous anthropology, view of man, or an erroneous theology proper, a view of God. We get God wrong, we get ourselves wrong. What are some misconceptions that people have about themselves today? They can run their own life and they can do whatever Okay, they can just be the Lord and be their own God, right? That's autonomy, right? That's what everyone wants, to be self-governed. What are some other misconceptions that sinners have about themselves? There's good in all of us. There's good in all of us, right? We're all good. What else? That they can go ahead and do something uh, that they know is wrong or sinful and then just come back and ask God forgiveness. That is a wrong view of repentance, isn't it? Repentance doesn't mean I can just do what I want and then come back later and say I'm sorry. Right? Repentance is turning away so that it issues in a changed life. Right? Not just saying I'm sorry. That's why we love rituals and religiosity and all these things. Because we can have our sin and then go to church on Sunday and feel better, right? But that's a damning lie. It damns many people to hell with false assurance. What are some other misconceptions we have about ourselves naturally? That truth is subjective to how we feel or what we think or our own experiences. That's right. We're the ultimate determiner of truth. Truth begins and ends with us, right? That's what we think in our culture. So... Men naturally think that there's good in them, that they're righteous. Well, what is a, a kind of a cliche we hear today? I know I do bad things, but God, what? He knows my God knows my heart. Right? I'm a good person. I just make mistakes. What do you think, Sean? That's right. God knowing your heart is not a good thing. That's a bad thing for the sinner, because you can deceive people and make people think you're pretty good, but God knows the truth. God knows reality. So the character of man. So as we're talking to the sinner, not only are we telling him about who God is, but we're telling the sinner about who he is. The truth about himself. And why is this important? Why is it so important that a sinner have an accurate understanding of himself? Why is that important? To see what actually God had done for him and why God even died on the cross. So we'll understand the Gospel and have a greater appreciation for the Gospel. If you skip over this point and you just talk about salvation by faith and the cross and so on, you just do that, the sinner's going to say, hey, that's nice. You know, Jesus loves me. I've got plenty of people who love me. I really don't need another one, right? That's fine. I'm glad it works for you. Or like we talked about last week, the life enhancement gospel. Come to Jesus, He'll make your life better. And the person says, man, i got a great life anyway. I mean, I'm living the American dream. What do I need Jesus for? But if instead we give the sinner the real diagnosis, the real problem, namely his self, he's a sinner, guilty before God, then it doesn't matter how good his life is or how bad it is, he's going to see the need for Christ. He needs Jesus not to fix his life, but to save him from the wrath of God. So man, we talk about man. What are some things that we need to tell the sinner? What are some more things? What are some things we need to tell the sinner about himself? Do we just skip over sin and tell him he's a good person? No. Is it, is it true that there's good in all of us? Is mankind born good, evil, or neutral? Evil. evil. That is the natural inclination of our heart, isn't it? If you don't believe in the doctrine of original sin and total depravity, have children. And then you will believe. 
Right? I promise you. Alright, let's talk about the character of man. Four things that I think we should communicate to the sinner. Four things. Number one, original sin. Original sin. We talk about that doctrine as Christians. What what does that doctrine mean? What does it refer to? What is the doctrine of original sin? What is the doctrine of original sin? It's a reference to the what? The first sin, the original sin, right? That's where it begins. So Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and the consequences of that sin, the ramifications, the the effects of that sin come not only upon them, but upon all of Adam's posterity, right? All of his descendants. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Let's see what God says about man's heart. You know, Disney Channel tells us to follow our hearts. But what does God say about our heart? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord, speaking through the pen of Moses, says this, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man's heart was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what does this say about man's heart? It's evil. It's evil. Go to, I think it's Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, same thing. Verse 21. Genesis 8 verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So our heart is evil, and it's evil from when? From our youth. What does that mean? Just when we're teenagers? No. <laughs> Caitlin heard the word teenager. She's like, what? So, so man's heart is evil, not just from when he's young, but from the moment of what? Birth. The moment he comes into the world, right? Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is above all things deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Then Psalm 51.5, turn to Psalm. 51. Psalm 51. Just letting the Lord Himself, through His Word, tell us about our natural estate. Psalm 51. Verse 5. David, writing after his grave sin with Bathsheba, writes his prayer of repentance and confession, and here's what he writes in Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. What is David saying there? Is David saying he was born out of fornication? Now, what is David saying? He was brought into the world sinful. He was born sinful, right? Born. We often say it this way: born in sin, right? He was born a sinner. One more, Psalm fifty-eight, three. Just a few pages to the right. Psalm fifty-eight, three. Psalm 58, verse 3. The psalmist writes, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. According to that verse, when does the rebellion of the wicked begin? Birth. birth right? So, if you, you, you can believe, if you want, that we're naturally good. But if you believe that, you can't believe the Bible. Because the Bible says the opposite. Right? We have to submit to what the Word of God says, even if we don't like it. 
the Word of God teaches unequivocally that mankind is not neutral, he's not good, he's absolutely evil. He's evil. So from the moment of our birth, the natural inclination of the heart of a sinner is to do that which pleases him. That's all he wants. A baby comes out of the womb and it wants all the attention, right? And that doesn't change. As we grow up, we want all the attention. We want what we want. We want, as Ian said earlier, autonomy. We want to be the Lord of our own life. The seed of every sin is deeply embedded in the core of our being from our birth. That's why we have evil desires. And if you want to prove this to a sinner, you can just ask him this. What if? What if I had the ability to take every thought you've ever had and play it on a large TV screen for everyone here to see? How would you feel about that? We know how we would feel about that. We would run the other way because we thought things so evil and abhorrent we would know when to know about it. But God does, right? Our hearts are evil. So we talk about original sin. And this goes back to Romans 5. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. The way God deals with His people is He deals with them uh, in corporate solidarity. We are represented by one. Every human being is represented by one man. Unbelievers are represented by who? Who's the man that represents unbelievers? The man. The man that represents unbelievers. Who? Sound like you. Adam. Who represents believers? Christ. The second Adam, right? Look at Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So notice that. Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Then verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. The likeness of the offense of Adam. In other words, when Adam sinned, he broke a law that was given to him in verbal form. Okay, before, In between the times of Adam and Moses, there was no codified expression of God's law, right? We have the law of God in our hearts, but there was no tablets of stone. There was no Scripture in between the time of Moses and Adam. So even people in between that time who sinned without a codified expression of the law, even they died, even though they didn't sin like Adam. They didn't break a law given to them in verbal form. They died because sin, the sin of Adam was legally imputed to them. They died for Adam's sin. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. So there's a free gift that comes through Jesus that's not like the transgression that came through Adam. There's a distinction, a contrast. For if by the transgression of the one, the many die. Notice that. How, how many transgressions led to the death of the many? One. The transgression of the one, the many die. People die for Adam's sin and of course our own sins. We add to it. But Adam's one sin is enough to condemn us all. So by the transgression of the one, the many died much more than the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. We stand righteous before the throne of God as believers, right? Why are we righteous before God as Christians? Because Jesus Christ came and sent the Son. Okay. 
He died for us, but there's more than He died for us. What else did He do? He rose, but even before that. Took our sins. But even before that, what did He do? He lived for us. Right? So we are clothed in whose righteousness? Christ. So in Christ, we're clothed with His righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to us. In Adam, we're clothed with His guilt. His guilt is imputed to us. Okay? So we're guilty from birth. And Paul just goes on and on with that idea. So we're guilty from birth because the corruption, because the guilt of Adam is imputed to us. We're corrupted from birth because his nature is transmitted to us. And so we are, by nature, sinners. We're sinners. So we talk about original sin, but is it in there? Does it just end at original sin? No, we have our own sins, don't we? We have our own actual transgressions. But where do our actual transgressions flow from? From our heart, right? So our actual sins flow from original sin. And that's why we need to make the unbeliever come to realize this. That he can't just make himself okay by behavioral modification. That's not going to fix the problem, okay? Trying to do better isn't going to save him, right? Because the problem is not primarily the behavior, is it? The problem is the what? The heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. I've told you this before. I mean, imagine if your car breaks down, your engine goes out, you say, hey, I'm going to give it a paint job. Is that going to help? Now, Sean knows all too well that that doesn't help. When there's a problem inside the car, we need a mechanic to go inside and do the, do the work, right? Painting the outside of it is irrelevant and superfluous. Same thing if you have strep throat. If you just take Tylenol and ibuprofen for the fever and allevi- alleviate the symptoms, that's not going to deal with the problem, is it? You've got strep throat. You've got a bacterial infection internally. You need an antibiotic to go in and do the job. So it is for the sinner. It's not just that he does sporadic acts of evil and that he needs to stop doing it. The problem is his heart is evil from which those deeds flow and therefore he needs a new heart. He needs an inside job, right? He needs heart surgery by the work of the Spirit of God through the Gospel. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, He didn't tell him you need to be reformed, did He? He didn't tell him you need to be better. What did He tell him? You need to be born again. You need a new heart. You need to start all over again. You need to be changed from the inside out. So the problem is the heart, but that issues in behavior. So sin. What is sin? We talk about that word a lot. What is sin? What is sin? Somebody knows. Come on. Huh? Breaking God's law. That's right. What did you say, Carol? Imperfection. It's definitely imperfection, right? To fall short. So sin is to fall short. Turn to Romans 3. Let's hear how the Word of God describes man. Romans 3, starting at verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Who is under sin? Every person. Right? Notice again, he doesn't just say all have sin. He says all are under sin. They're under its dominating influence, under its power, under its slavery, under its corruption. All men are dominated by sin. Verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous... Not even one. How many righteous people are there on the earth according to this verse? None. There's none righteous. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Do men naturally seek for God? No. Do we naturally love God? No. We naturally hate God, right? Verse 12, they've all turned aside. Together they've become useless. That word there referred to spoiled milk thrown in the garbage. That's God's description of the human race. Useless. That they are useless. Then he goes on. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Does anybody do good? No. People say all the time, but I do good. I mean, I do good deeds. I help old people across the street. I give money to the poor. I mean, I help people. (laughs) Are those deeds really good according to God's standard? No, because good is moral perfection and to do a deed out of love for God and with a view to His glory. No one naturally does that. And even the believer doesn't perfectly do that. Okay, So no one naturally does good. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Here, here are the means by which we express our depravity. Their throat's an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's why we have Planned Parenthood, isn't it? Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And here's the great indictment. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. Men hate God. They don't love Him, nor do they fear Him. That's the problem. Verse 19 and 20, the conclusion, they're condemned without excuse. They're condemned without excuse. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. It's the breaking of God's law. Sin is not oopsie-daisy. That's not what sin is. Sin isn't, oh, I'm a good person, I just kind of made a mistake. Sin is cosmic treason. It is cosmic treason. It is rebellion against the King of Heaven, and it is punishable by what? Death. That brings us thirdly to the just penalty. The just penalty. So we tell the unbeliever about original sin, about the corruption of his own heart. We tell him about his actual transgressions, his actual sins, his violations of God's law. But thirdly, we tell him about the just penalty. The penalty for sin is death, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall die. Romans 1, Paul says, those who do such things are worthy of death. If I go to Romans 1. Romans 1. You want to read a commentary on American culture? Here it is. Starting in verse... Sort of verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. In unrighteousness. Men have the truth about God. Is there, is there a such thing as an atheist? No, atheists don't exist. We are to be a atheists. There are no atheists. They have the truth. They simply suppress it, suppress it because they love their sin. An atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a cop, right? He's guilty. He doesn't want to be found. Like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. But one day, heaven and earth will flee from before Him and we will stand before Him in judgment. Verse 19, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are unapologetic, without excuse, no defense. So, according to this passage, how do all men know God exists? 
creation. God, God made me in. That's why. God made you, right? You're made in God's image. You live in God's world. You have the law of God on your heart. You are without excuse. No one has excuse. Verse 21. Even though they knew God. Paul speaking in categorical terms about humanity. Even though they knew God. According to this verse, does the unbeliever you're sharing the gospel with on the streets, does he know God? No. According to this, yes and no. Trick question. Yes, in the sense that he knows God exists, he knows his creator. No, in the sense that he doesn't know him savingly. Right? He doesn't have a saving relationship with Christ. But he does know Christ. He does know the creator because he's made in his image and lives in his world. But even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Here we go, verse 22. Here's America, you ready? Professing to be wise, they became fools. We are a people who boast in our scientific knowledge, a culture that rejects God on a scientific basis, supposedly, and in a culture that turns around and can't figure out who's a boy and who's a girl. We can't even get basic physiology right and understand that there's two genders. Right? I mean, it's absolutely... It's funny, I had a friend who uh, shared a Facebook post years ago and it said on there about ordering a t-shirt that says all the genders and then in the order information it says male or female. <laughs> I should have listened to their own website, shouldn't I? So, there's two genders. That's scientific. That's basic physiology. But our culture says we're scientific and can't get it. They say they're wise, they become fools because they reject God who's the source of all wisdom. And they're reduced to folly. Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of God. Verse 24, So God gave them over. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. They go down to verse 28. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, a useless mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, Greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Do men love God? No. No, naturally they hate Him. No. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, they know the law of God. It's in their heart. They don't want to hear the truth. That's the problem. That's right. They don't want the truth. They know it, but they those who practice such things are worthy of death. They get that. They not only do them, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. God condemns not only acting in these sins, but even giving approval to those who do. You may say, I'm not into transgenderism and homosexuality, but I approve those who are. They're worthy of death. All of us, naturally, are worthy of death. That brings me to a question. What, when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, what does that mean? What is death? When you die, you're not living no more. <laughs> okay, not living. Does it mean that the cessation of consciousness? Does it mean we're not conscious anymore? Say that again. Separation. So that word separation is a word I think we need to lock onto. When we talk about death, there are several kinds of death. There's physical death. Okay? Physical death is separation from what? The body and the material world, right? Paul says death is to depart and be with Christ. Okay? Then there's spiritual death, right? What is that? Separation from what? God and the life of God. It's to be outside of communion with God, right? Isaiah, your sins have made a separation between you and your God, right? Ephesians 4.18, they're alienated from the life of God. We are naturally dead in sin because of our sin and are separated from God. 
But then there's a final death. What do we call that? The Bible calls it the second death, right? But we can also call it eternal death. What is eternal death? While you those you have been be with Jesus or whether you go to hell. Going to heaven to be with Jesus would be eternal life, right? Eternal death is eternal separation from the love of God, the life of God, and the grace of God, and eternal subjugation to the wrath of God in hell. The lake of fire. That is what we deserve for our sin. And the unbeliever needs to know that. That's right. So when we say separation from God, we don't mean completely away from the presence of God. Because God, number one, is omnipresent, right? You can't get away from God. We mean cut off from God's life, God's grace, and God's favor, but subjugated to the fullness of His wrath and His anger. Hell is not an escape from God. You know, the common cliche in our culture is we're going to hell and party with the devil. The devil doesn't rule hell, right? The devil is the first to be cast into hell along with all of his children who will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's horrible, isn't it? Yes, it is. Go that way. That's right. One writer said, Thus in hell it will be as if though you've been there for millions and millions of ages, at which point you'll realize you're no closer to the end than you were when you began. Can you imagine that? You know, often I'll say this, imagine a long day at work, you've been out in the sun, and, and I know you guys really in Syracuse don't know a lot about hot days, but, but imagine a long day in the sun, and you know, you're about to get off, 12 hour shift, and the only thing that sees you through the last 20 minutes is you know in just a few minutes, you're going to clock out and you're going to chug that nice cold water. <laughs> in hell, that moment never comes. In hell, the sinner will be seeking death, and death will never find him. He'll be forever dying and yet never dead. He'll long for death and death will be eternally elusive. It is an eternal death from which you cannot escape. Does that not break our hearts? That there are people right now in our community, in our families, in our schools, that if they die right now, they will spend eternity under the wrath of God in hell? We want to tell the sinner that. Now we could sugarcoat this and lie to him. What good would that do? What good would that do? That's like telling someone, hey, you know, it's okay if you go in there and rob that store, they're not going to care, and he goes in and robs it, and they shoot him. I mean, what a foolish thing to do. Tell people the truth. The person that loves you the most will tell you the most truth. Will tell you the most truth. It's easy to lie because we don't want to offend people. But if we love people, we tell them the truth. So the just penalty. But finally, one more bit of information that you want to share with the unbeliever concerning himself, and that is man's inability. The sinner has a terrible plight, doesn't he? He is in an awful situation. And can he do anything about it? Naturally, no. He can do nothing. He's broken the law. He can't unbreak it. Right? I mean, you can't shatter a mirror and just piece it back together. I, mean, I can't. Maybe there's some people who can. You can't. So you, you've broken the law. You're guilty. Imagine standing in front of a judge and you say, Your Honor, I look, I understand that I brutally beat that woman to death with her cane. But I do good things too, Your Honor. I, I play bingo at the nursing home every week. I mean, I buy groceries for people who can't afford them. I go to church. I go to Mass. I do, I'm, I'm fastidiously committed to religiosity. Your Honor, you should just let me go. I'm sorry. If he's a good judge, is he going to let him go? Hell no. No. Hell the no. Ma- language, John. Watch your language, right? 
We've got to use the word hell rightly, okay? So, no. The man has no ability to rescue himself at that point. He is doomed. And so it is with the sinner. Look at uh, Romans chapter 3 again. Romans 3. Starting in verse 19. Verse 19. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Who's that? Who's under the law? God. Everyone. God is the law. Everyone. Everyone outside of Christ. Everyone naturally is under the law. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may be accountable to God. The law of God shuts the mouth of the sinner and leaves him guilty. Who here today can say he's never lied? He's never stolen. He's never used the name of God in vain. He's never looked with lust. He's never hated his neighbor. And you say, well, I've never hated my neighbor. Well, insulting your neighbor and calling him a fool, Jesus says, makes you guilty enough to go to hell. All of us. If you sin one time a day, that's 365 sins a year. And that's a lot better than what we probably really did. Live to be 40. I mean, imagine how many times you've broken the law of God. What judge would ever pardon a criminal with a record like you and me? No good judge. And we have nothing we can do about it. We stand condemned before God. Verse 20, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. You cannot be right with God by the law. Because the law demands perfection. You have not, nor can you do that. And therefore, you are hopeless when it comes to the law. And look at uh, Romans 8. A few pages to the right. Romans 8, verse 3. Verse 3. Starting in verse 3. Actually, go to verse... Verse 6. Verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh, that is the unregenerate mind, the person who's not born again, He's devoid of the Spirit of God, devoid of spiritual life. His mind is dominated by sinful, unredeemed human flesh. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. You are unable to keep the law. Especially as an unbeliever. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Man, naturally, cannot please God. We are saved not because we've done something to please God, but because our Savior did something to please God. James, that's how we were born. We're born in flesh. That's right. So, so we're unable to. That's how we come out. That's right. That's right. Amen. Let me ask you this: the man in the flesh can't please God. Does faith in Jesus please God? Because of what Christ has accomplished. Say it again. Satan never pleased God. That's right. Satan doesn't believe, right? But faith in Jesus pleases God. But the man in the flesh can't please God. So the man in the flesh, that is to say the natural man, cannot have faith. To even have faith in Jesus, we have to be spiritual men. We have to be born again. You know, often in our culture we hear this, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be born again. I say it's the opposite. I say if you're born again, then you can believe in Jesus. That's where it begins. Regeneration precedes and even produces faith. You've got to be born again. The natural man can't believe. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Kevin's not here, so I can go to 10.30, right? 
First Corinthians two, verse fourteen. Exactly. Now, there's a difference between saving faith and demonic faith. And we'll talk about that in detail in a few weeks. Verse 14, but a natural man... What is a natural man? Sinful. Sinful. So a natural man is someone... The Greek a liar. Could, say it again. A liar. Natural man is a liar. Yeah. Uh, the Greek could be translated unspiritual man. The unspiritual man... This is the unbeliever. The man who is not born again does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. For you to discern spiritual truth, you have to be a what? A spiritual person. Now, notice what he says. He says he cannot understand them. And again, we need to distinguish between the word can and may. Right? You tell your your mother, can I go to the bathroom? And what does she say? I don't know, can you? Right? We're pointing out the importance of that distinction of the words can and may. May is a word of permission. Can is a word of ability, right? So when Paul says he cannot understand them, he's saying the natural man, the unconverted man, doesn't have the ability to understand the gospel. So if he's going to understand the gospel, he has to be born again. Has to be a spiritual man. John six thirty seven. Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless my Father who is in heaven draws him." If you're going to come to Christ, you have to be what? Drawn by the Father. He says that in John six forty four. But in verse thirty seven, he says, "All whom the Father gives to me will come to me." So if God's given you to the Son, what are you going to do? You're going to come. You can't come unless you're drawn, and you will come if you are drawn. God must open the eye. The, man, the sinner naturally has no ability to save. So we tell the sinner about his original sin, that is the corruption of his heart. We tell him about his own actual transgressions. We tell him about the just penalty of eternal death. And we tell him about his inability to please God or keep the law. Any final questions or thoughts or comments on that? Well... May we be faithful, brothers and sisters, to communicate the truth about man to our fellow image bearers in hopes that God would open their eyes to the truth and draw them again. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word. We thank You that You've given us such a clear presentation of this good news in the Scripture and that we can know it, believe it, love it, and proclaim it. And I pray that You would help us to be faithful to do just that. Thank You for saving us from our terrible plight, giving us the righteousness of Your Son, and making us new creatures by Your sovereign grace. Help us now to live our lives in a way that is consistent with that and brings glory to You. Amen.